I'm real glad we can be together today for uh, what is part two of a series that we're calling Your New Default. Amen. And so, and so it's going to be going well for you this week, I take it, Dwayne. So what we, do around, what we do around here, if you're new to church or if you're, or if you're, if you're new to this church, uh, and if you are, we're really, really glad that you're here today. And whatever's brought you, whether you're here with somebody, someone bribed you with a free lunch, or you found us on your own, thank you for being here. Uh, we don't take that for granted. I got that. What we do here more often than not is we take a subject and we kind of break it down over several weeks, sometimes four, five, six weeks, sometimes months. And we always teach from the Bible and we're just exploring how this ancient document can actually speak into our lives and how what happened so long ago, especially what happened on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus, how it still impacts our lives today. So we try to frame everything in the context of that, and then just so you are aware, it's going to take us a while to get to the Scripture today, but we're going to get there. Okay, I want to lay a ton of groundwork. Uh, now, for most of the summer and into September, uh, we explored the subject of prayer. We gave five sessions to talking about the Lord's Prayer, the idea that prayer is more than a button to be pushed, it's a relationship to be pursued. Um, and then last week, we introduced this idea, uh, what we decided would become a new series, uh, what we're calling Your New Default. And what we're trying to drill down on is, is to, to kind of help us identify and maybe even change some of our defaults. So what do I mean by that? Well, we said in part one that we all have a default. And for most of us, our default is a reaction. Rather than a response, it's a reaction to something. So depending on what that something is, we have all kinds of different defaults. Like if we, and we have default reactions to almost everything. Now, <clears throat> you can be 17 or 18 years old and you've already developed and leaned into some defaults. If you're 50 plus, I promise you, you have defaults. If you're in your 70s, they are pretty set by now. But the question is, regardless of how old you are, the question is, can you change your defaults? Because our default is rarely awesome, right? Your default is rarely awesome. My default is rarely good at all. Like how, like for instance, like how do you respond when you get home from work on Friday afternoon and your husband says, you know, hey, guess what? I got to work tomorrow again. What's your default reaction to that? Or when your kids say, yeah, my homework's done. And then you find out that it isn't. What is your default reaction? What do you do when you hear chaos coming from a room down the hall, another room in your house, like you only stepped out to, into the kitchen to grab another cup of coffee, and it, you're, it seems that your five-year-old and your three-year-old are up to something. Someone is wailing on someone down the hall, and there's tears, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, what are you, so what are you thinking? Here's what you're thinking. You know it's the five-year-old again. You know it. You know that the five-year-old just, just hit the three-year-old in the face again. You know it. How do you know that? Well, you, you don't really know it. You just used your default. And our default is to assume. We make assumptions. Our, and our default is rarely accurate, and it's rarely healthy, and it's rarely awesome. And uh, we, we've got a default on a number of things. So we started this uh, series in part one last week, and we talked about the default that a lot of us have towards judgment. And sometimes it's hard to know uh, kind of sometimes like real life topics, which ones we should address in church. There's never a question in my mind if church people can relate to the topic of judgment. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Who's judging now? Um, but 
Church people, you know who you are, are accomplished judgers. We just are. Man, we lean heavy into this. We judge each other. We judge situations. We always judge negatively. And we, so we took some time uh, last week talking about and looking at why judgment of others is a bad idea. Remember the challenge from part one? It was to keep a judgment log. And I said that from the get-go that that exercise was only for if you were brave enough to do it. So I wonder how many of us actually did that. I wasn't great at it. I didn't, even, I didn't even try to do it every day. But the days that I did, I discovered something about myself. Now, I was reminded about something about myself. That I tend to, the people that I tend to judge with the harshest criteria, and I know this about myself, but I judge judgers. I know there's irony in that, right? But I judge people who judge. So like, like, I have so little tolerance for judgmental people. And I'd like to think that puts me in good company, like with Jesus. Because <laughs> Jesus had some things to say about people who judge. Like, he judged the judges. Small detail, I'm not Jesus. You probably noticed that, but I'm not. And the whole idea behind Jesus' teaching on judgment is that we're not in a place to judge, then we talked about discernment, because that's, that's a different thing. That's what makes this kind of challenging, that we're not in a place to judge, only God is in a place to judge, but at the same time, we're to exercise discernment. So in keeping with this idea of resetting our default, we, we looked at moving from judgment to grace. Instead of being so judgmental, why don't we work at showing grace to the people around us? And I ask the question, you imagine what our lives would look like if that was our default? If we, if we erred on the side of grace, if that was our underlying characteristic of the people at Faith Community Fellowship, that, oh, those people just err on the side of grace all the time. Can you imagine? So I'm working on that, and I know you are too. Today I want to ask a new question, and it's this. Would you say that, generally speaking, don't answer this out loud, but are you a trusting person? Would you say, hey, deep down, first, I'm a trusting person. I tend to assume the best. I tend to believe the best. I'm a, I'm a pretty trusting person. I'll trust you, like, when I meet you. And I think, honestly, a lot of us would say, well, I used to be. When I was younger, I used to be a trusting person. I used to be a hopeful person. I used to be an optimistic person. That you can remember back and like, yeah, I was an optimist, but then life happened. So right now, now you're like, I'm a realist. You know, you know what? That's what you know what pessimists call themselves? That's right, realists, exactly. That's what they call themselves. And you're like, no, 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 I'm a realist because like my trust has been broken so many times. You have no idea what I'm carrying around, so you have no idea how bad the story is. Listen, today I want to talk about our default of suspicion and distrust and pessimism. And I'd love for you in an hour or so when we're leaving here, in your family, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationship with God, to make a choice. The choice is that we are going to decide to choose to trust, all right? To choose to trust. Here's something I want for us as a church to be a place where we trust each other. Because trust is a choice. In the world we live in, which I don't know, seems to be getting darker, not brighter, trust is a decision. And it's a decision that I think could change your family, I think could change your life, I think could change everything. 
So trust is a choice, but the alternative, see there's a default, and the default that a lot of us fly to immediately is not trust, it's something else, and often it's because of our life story, and I get where that's coming back, we can, coming from, we can often trace it back, you know, to something in our life uh, circumstance, and it's like, oh, if you could see the world the way that I see it, if you experienced the world the way that I've experienced it, you would not choose to trust, you know, you, you'd have a very different default, <clears throat> perhaps, but you know what the default a lot of us have is? It's not trust, it's suspicion. It's suspicion that by default, we are suspicious of each other. We are suspicious of people. In most workplaces that you've been involved in, the culture isn't one of trust. It's one of suspicion. Most families, honestly, the culture is not a culture of trust. It's a, it's a culture of suspicion. A lot of friendships. Suspicion, not trust. Trust is a choice, and suspicion is a choice. So even though it may, not, it, may be, uh, it may be your default, you're still choosing to be suspicious. It's a choice. And we can be suspicious about so much. We meet somebody new, and immediately we're just suspicious. I mean, you don't bother to introduce yourself to people at church, to people you've never seen before, because you're suspicious. Like, First of all, they might be from away. What do they want with us? What are they doing here? So we're definitely suspicious. I lived here a long time. I know. So it's either you're suspicious or you're just rude and uncaring. I'm going to go with suspicious. So, because I don't know what your I don't know what your deal is. Maybe it's just because in general you're you're suspicious of people you don't know. Maybe you're suspicious about religion. And I'm not saying there's not good reason for that. I mean, there are lots of reasons to be suspicious of religion and the church. And it, it breaks my heart and makes the work of carrying on the mission of Jesus so much harder, but it becomes a default. Maybe you've had a, like maybe you've had a negative experience in a church somewhere or painful or dysfunctional or maybe even abusive experience in the church. And now you're like, well, every church every pastor, every priest, every religious person, everybody, and now we're suspicious of all of it. Maybe you don't trust politicians, and I can't imagine why, but you're like, they're all bad. Like, they're all corrupt. They're all power-hungry. They're all self-serving. Some of you don't trust men, because you're like, I used to trust men, but now I don't trust men. Let me tell you why I don't trust men, how much time you got. Some of you don't trust your boss. You don't trust, you've never had a boss you trusted. You don't, trust co you don't trust coworkers. You don't trust your employees. You just don't trust. So if we drill down on this a little bit, it shows up in so many places. You know what? My default, unchecked by the Holy Spirit, unchecked by my faith, is not trust. And, and I'm an optimist, pretty much. I'm a pretty trusting person, but I can easily fall into the place where it's not trust, it's suspicion. Because suspicion is a choice. And it shows up all over the place. What happens, here's the problem. If you want to know how to spot this problem in your life, in every situation in life, like I, like I promise you, by the end of today, certainly by the end of tomorrow, there's going to be a gap. There's, a, there's this gap, and it's a gap in information. Here's what it looks like. Well, I don't know what this boss is going to be like. I don't know what's happening in the room down the hall with my five-year-old and three-year-old. I don't know. And we don't know, so we fill in the blanks with something. 
And usually what happens is we make up an explanation in our heads, right? You're like, oh, I know what happened. I'm not down there, but I know what happened. The five-year-old popped the three-year-old. I know what happened. That always happens, right? Or I know what happens in this industry. I know none of these people are trustworthy. So there's a gap. There's always a gap. And your life is inevitably going to have these gaps. Your marriage has gaps, right? Like, Like there's, let's say there's like an $80 Amazon charge on your bank account. And there's a gap in information. Now, you know, you probably didn't get hacked. Not for, it's only $80. So it's your spouse, because they're the only one that has access. What happened to that $80? There's a gap in information. And you can fill it in with, oh, what sale? What did she find on sale now? You know, you can fill it in with that. That's probably not helpful. You can fill it in with, oh, of course he went and bought the new tech thingy, gadgety thing of gizmo, whatever, but it'd be more than $80, more like $800, right? <laughs> Hi there. This is, <laughs> this is what we think, is there's a gap in information. So what do we do with the gap in information, right? What do we do with it? We're going to fill it in. And you don't just go, well, I don't know what that is. Oh, well, I don't know what happened there, what, whatever. Rather than ask a question, we default to filling in the gap with something. And most of us, this is what happens. You and I fill the gaps with suspicion because there are some reasons for this. But our default, if you're a human being, this arises from the fact that we're sinful. Now, I know some of you hate that word and you're like, I went to church once and I said I was a sinner and I said I'd never go back and now here I am. Listen, sin is not just an action. The way that it's often taught is that sin is an action, right? But that's maybe oversimplifying. But... uh, Sin is a condition. Sin is a condition, and because that's our condition, we're always going to gravitate towards this default of suspicion. So why do we do that? Well, number one, sin. Uh, Number two, you were raised that way, so let's blame it on them, right? Maybe maybe you grew up in a house where nobody believed anybody, like right where your your house is filled with gossip, and you're talking about people who aren't in the room. So that became very natural to you because. You were raised in it, you were steeped in it, and you just assumed that was, that was the only choice. Here's another reason we talked about this one last week. This shows up a lot. You think you're better. You're better than that other person. There's something about suspicion that makes us feel better about ourselves, right? Like we feel smarter, we feel better informed, we're like streetwise, let me tell you why this happens, let me tell you why they're that way, let me show you how this goes down, let me explain to you, it's not why, it's not what you think it is, I'm better. And we, we, we try to build ourselves up so often by tearing other people down. I don't know if you've ever experienced that phenomenon. Uh, this, is, this is a sign of insecurity, first of all. And it's a sign of sin in your life. It's like, how am I going to make myself feel good by telling you how bad that other person is? I think I can make this work. So we kind of think we're better. We kind of think we're superior. And we got this figured out. And, and listen, here's why this is not just self-help this morning. It's like, you want to you dig deep, you want to go deep. You, you, we need Jesus for this. We need the Holy Spirit for this kind of stuff. Like we said in, in part one last week, this isn't just like, oh, do these things and these things will get better. Yes, they might get better, but there are, there are times you're just going like to hit a wall and you're like, I don't have it in me. I don't have this ability. I don't have this strength. I can't do this. I can't see this through. 
That's why the ancients called this process sanctification, the process of in cooperation with the Holy Spirit of being made holy. It's a process of being made new. It's a process of what God does when he comes into your life, when, what Jesus does when he comes into your life and he remakes you from the inside out, from the ground up. And, and you know what, what, what's happened to, to some of us? It's not just that you were like raised this way, because maybe you were, maybe you weren't. It's not just that you think you're better you, and you love to tear other people down so that other people are reminded how much better you are. You know, you love to say bad things about people when they're not in the room. It, it's that maybe you've stopped hoping. You're like, but this is my, like, this is my third marriage and, and I'm blank years old. Uh, do, you know, do you know how many people I've dated? Do you know how many jobs I've been through? Do you know how many bosses I've had? Do you know how many times I've tried? It's like, here we go again, and then boom, you know, and the, my trust gets broken. And somewhere along the line, you stopped hoping. And you're like, I'm not going down that road again. You know what's down that road? Heartbreak. You know what's down that road? Misery. And you can get cynical really fast. Because we live in a pretty cynical age. I think humans have always been cynical, but we live in an angry culture, and maybe you find yourself thinking, I don't even hope anymore. It's the point. If you find yourself in that category, let me just say it this way you need Jesus. You need the gospel of Jesus. You need a refresher on the gospel. Like, Maybe you're a Christian and you need to bring Jesus back to the center of who you are because, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of relentless hope. And we lose sight of that. And I get it. Like, life is hard. Like, maybe recently life has been hard. Maybe your whole life, life has been hard. I just want to encourage you to take a look at Jesus. They nailed him to a cross. And God raised him from the dead. Why? Because he's showing us, you know, we're going to take the very worst of what you can throw at me, and I'm going to use it to save you. I'm going to use it to sanctify you, to make you more like me. You walked away from me, I'm not walking away from you. You spit in my face, I'm not spitting in your face. You sin, I forgive, because I'm not giving up on you, humanity. And later the Apostle Paul, kind of marveling about this, trying to put this into words, writes a letter to the church in Corinth. We know it as a book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. And if you've never touched the Bible, I encourage you, first of all, to read your Bible. I I would encourage you to do that on a regular basis. But even if you aren't that familiar with the Bible, you probably know some of this passage because you've been to a wedding or two. This, listen, this was never intended as a passage for weddings. This is not a wedding text. It's not even about marriage. It's about life in the kingdom of God with these upside-down values that Jesus taught. When Jesus said, love others as I've loved you, this is what Paul's talking about. It's actually a message to the church with a whole bunch of cynical people living in a dark culture trying to figure out how to have hope, how to choose trust, not suspicion, how to live in a world that's as dark as ours. We think we got it bad. I mean, study the first century, learn about the culture in first century Greece, which is where Corinth is. It was bad. It was perverse. It was dark. The culture gave them every reason to be suspicious and to give up hope. And then Paul says, now I want to show you something excellent. I want to show you the most amazing way Let's talk about the way of Jesus. I'm going to show you a different way. This is a different reality. I want to to talk to you about love. 
And not the love the way you experience it, not whatever you think of when you think of love, not the butterflies and the stomach thing. I want you to see how God loves and the love that he wants you to put in your heart and in your life. So Paul's like, you ready? Let me describe it for you. This is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. See, immediately when there's a gap... Do you know what you have when you've resorted to suspicion? Impatience. Because you're not going to wait to find out what's really going on. You're just going to assume. We're not going to believe the best. You're like, I need to know right now. Like, what's going on here? Maybe I'm making it up, but I'm sure it's bad. So it doesn't really matter. I already know. It's, It's awful. That's not what love is. If you're doing that, you're not motivated by love. You're certainly not motivated by the love of God because the love of God is patient. And is suspicion kind? Suspicion's never kind. I love this definition of love that I came across a while back. Some little kids were being asked to talk about the love of God and what love is. And this one little girl says this. This is what love is. You know somebody loves you when your name is safe in their mouth. Think about how many times someone's name hasn't been safe in your mouth. And they aren't even in the room. We throw people under the bus. We criticize them. We are suspicious of their motives. Love doesn't do that. Love is kind. Love is patient. The love of God is patient. Have you found that to be true? The love of God is kind. Verse 4, it does not envy. So this is one of the reasons we do it, like, like why we judge, why we're suspicious. We have this little jealousy thing going on. Oh, okay, yeah, I get it. I know how they got that promotion. I know why they make so much more money than me. I know why they got that house. You know the backstory? Let me tell you the backstory. There's envy, and that's not from the Holy Spirit. Love doesn't boast. I mean, how many times have we we built ourselves up by tearing other people down, right? Love isn't proud. Like, Like, some of our pride comes from narcissism, but weirdly, most of it comes from our insecurity, Like we feel so badly about ourselves that we have to be miserable about other people to make ourselves feel better somehow. Just, which honestly, can I tell you, just makes you ultimately feel worse about yourself. Pride comes from an unhealthy self-focus. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Love is not proud. This is so big. It does not on, dishonor others. Suspicion always does. You're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. What about those times when I'm right? What if the five-year-old actually is beating up on the three-year-old when I'm not in the room? What if my friend breaks my trust? What if they're talking about me behind my back? What if I'm right about that? What if my husband doesn't care? What if he's positioned to just break my heart? Then that should break your heart. Like, you should be sad. That's a healthy response. We should be sad about these things, but you shouldn't be like, see, I told you so. We should be like, I was hoping for the best. I was hoping for something good This makes me sad. But when we jump into the space where we're making up bad things about people, when we're resorting to suspicion, that dishonors them. Look what else love is, verse 5. Love is not self-seeking. You know what's behind all of our suspicions? My suspicion, your suspicion? 
me, you, it's us. Love is not easily angered. That's where God's love takes us. We're not easily angered. And then this one, love keeps no record of wrongs. You want to know why maybe your marriage isn't good? Why your long-term relationships aren't that healthy? Maybe because you have a record of wrongs. Well, how do you know if I have a record of wrongs? It starts this way. We touched on this last week too. When these two words come out of our mouths, you are keeping a record of wrong. Always and never. But you always, you never. You're like, but it's true. That's not the point. That's a record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep one. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, just doesn't. I do. I'm working on it. Like, we do this. I hope you're working on it. Because love doesn't. Jesus doesn't. He nailed that to the cross. So can you imagine living this way in your family? With no record of wrongs? Verse 6. Love does not delight in evil. Because that's what suspicion does, see? Told you. I knew it. Ah, of course. And now, and now it's like you're happy that you were right. It doesn't make any sense. But you should not be happy you're right. You know, when something bad happens, we should, we should not be happy. That's not, that kind of mental gymnastics is not from God, right? Love rejoices with the truth. Here's, here's some always statements that are okay, by the way. It always protects my husband's name, my wife's name, my child's name, my parents' name, my friend's name should always be safe in my mouth. Like this is what you've longed for all your life. This is what you wish someone would have done for you maybe and they didn't. So now you're all suspicious and you're cynical and even angry and you find it hard to trust. Love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You're like, yeah, but this is like round 796 of this for me. Yeah, tomorrow will be round 797. And after that, it's 798. That's how you make it to 30, 40, 50 years of marriage. That's how you stay employed long term. That's how you maintain your integrity. That's how you keep growing your influence. That's how you make it through your life. It amazes me how Christians can be so cynical. We can and we are. And it doesn't make sense to me. So when it comes to being suspicious, ready for this? Don't. (laughs) Let's talk about this. Let's talk about it. How? Like, how do we trust? How do we begin to reset this default? This is is really critical, and and we forget this. I forget it. I think you forget it. As a church, we forget. In our families, we forget. So, like, in our marriages, we forget. In our workplaces, we definitely forget. So how do we trust? Here's something to get us started, to become less suspicious. Because, like, don't we all want to be less suspicious of people? To become less suspicious and more trusting, we can start by filling gaps in information with the most generous explanation possible. 
and I'm going to be generous when that gap hits, and I may immediately go to, you know, like, of course they're late. Yeah, they never, ever get anything done on time. No respect at all, you know, or yeah, the socks are on the floor again, or we're talking about important stuff here, or like the laundry is still sitting there. Of course, the dirty dishes are still in the sink. Of course, they took advantage of me. Of course, they overcharged me. They can't trust anyone in this industry. Of course, they want me to get a vaccine. Of course, they want to impose this on me. Wake up, America! It's a slippery slope! And yes, I went there, and you're like, oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> Tell me that somewhere at some time in the last year and a half since COVID-19 became a part of our everyday vocabulary, Tell me that you haven't been suspicious of something and someone and maybe everything and everyone. Doesn't matter where you sit, because apparently it's all like, tell me this isn't all, like it's the political ramifications blow my mind. But no matter where, we have the entire spectrum in this room, just so you know, in the church, in the kingdom of God, who knew? <laughs> tell me how your suspicions in the last year and a half have been helpful for you. How has that been beneficial for you? How has that fed hope in your soul? You talk about gaps in information these last 18 months. Sometimes it's like all we have is gaps in information. And so we, 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 don't, we don't like gaps in information, so we fill them. We fill them with all kinds of stuff. We fill it with misinformation, disinformation, Confirmation bias, fear, anger, judgment, suspicion. Listen, let's stop doing life this way. Jesus charged us with being the light in the darkness. So let's stop falling into this trap because you can't be the light if your light is covered with the darkness of distrust and suspicion and hopelessness. Instead, let's ask what's the most generous explanation possible? What's the most generous explanation? Like, I hope they're okay. Maybe there was traffic. Maybe something important came up. I bet they're coming back to do this later. They're going to finish this up later. Most generous explanation possible. Like the thing you wish somebody said about you if they didn't know what happened. Even if it's like not true, even if you know, you're just being lazy and irresponsible. Don't you wish that others thought the best of you even then? Rather than rolling their eyes like, see, told you. Fill the gap in information with the most generous explanation possible so this becomes our new de default. This, listen. That this is our new default. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure what's going on with him. I'm not sure what's going on with her. But there must be a perfectly good explanation. And some of us are going to have to be super intentional about changing this default. Because you're like, yeah, that's nice, Todd, but that ain't true. <laughs> like, there isn't a perfectly good explanation. Let me tell you what's really going on. Because if you think there's a perfectly good explanation, you don't get it at all. You really do live in a churchy pastor bubble, and you need to come out of your basement and get your head out of the sand. True or not is not the point. This is about resetting our defaults. And you're like, but I don't believe it. I'm not asking you to believe it right away. I'm asking you to say it. Listen. Because here's what I know to be true. Sometimes our actions and our behavior influence the words we use. Sometimes, sometimes the words we use influence our actions and behaviors and our view of the world around us. Because words matter. So I think it's worth giving it a shot. 
It's worth changing some of our words that run through our heads and sometimes even come out of our mouths because it's possible that eventually the cynic inside of you, the doubter inside of you, the sadness inside of you, the hopelessness inside of you might begin to lose some ground and hope will gain some. And again, this starts to change the default because when you tend to believe the best about others, often eventually you get the best from them. That's not a promise, but it's a possibility. Like think about, think about our parenting. Think about what's at stake, right? Because if you're constantly like, you never do your homework, you never do this, you never do that, you always do that, you're going to fail if you don't apply yourself, you're never going to get into college, you're not going to finish college, you're not going to really amount to much, and you're going to bounce from relationship to relationship, if you don't figure this out, guess what? That kind of stuff tends to become self-fulfilling prophecy. But if you start believing the best and you start hoping the best, if you deal with the truth and you start to work through it, amazing things can happen in your parenting. Because you're here, your kids can tell. Like they can tell what's going on in your head. And this can be really, really powerful in your parenting. And it starts way earlier than you think. Like the week you bring them home from the hospital. It's true. What about your friendships? What if you're like, I don't know why they did that, but I'm pretty sure it's a perfectly good explanation. It must be something I don't know. Like, what if that became your new default in your friendships? What if you started to believe the best about your friend? What about at work? You know, and you're like, it's so toxic, and our work cultures are soaked in suspicion, but what if you, listen, what if you became the person in your workplace who believed the best about the people around you? What if you became the person in your work where everybody's name is safe in your mouth? Why don't you become that person? And after time, people are going to ask you, because I know some people like this who get asked these questions, why are you so positive? Like, why, do you have, why can you have this attitude all the time? How can you be so positive? And people start to flock toward you and watch what happens in your influence with them. Or how about your faith? See, we don't just do this with each other. We do this with God. Sometimes we assume the worst. We fill in gaps. And we assume the worst about God. That's why some of us don't like to pray. That's why some of us don't want God's will in our life because you think it's just going to be worse than what you're currently experiencing. I, I, you know, as long as I keep God at a distance, I get to do what I want, when I want, because God isn't always good, and He doesn't love me, and if He does, He has a strange way of showing it. Often, listen, even if our mouth is saying, we love God, we think He's amazing, we're hesitant to trust Him with our lives. So you know what we do? We hold on to sin. We hold on to a worldview that isn't of the kingdom of God. We hold on to our perspective, and we grasp it even more tightly. We're like, Okay, God, you can have everything. Well, you can have everything but my, my money. I'll put a little, yeah, I'll put something in there, but like this is mine. I worked hard for this. Okay, God, you can have this, but not my sex life, because like that's not your business. Like you can have this, but not my position at work. Like you can have this, but not my career. Like that's my financial security. And we hang on so tight. And when we're hanging on tight like that, you know what's underneath that? 
we think that if we open up our hands and say, God, I surrender to your will, that he's going to put something worse in my future. Well, I'm certainly not going to have any fun anymore, that's for sure. Well, I don't know what you believe about God or where your ideas about God come from, but that's not the God of the Scripture. So do you trust God or are you suspicious? And there's a lot we don't understand when it comes to faith. There's a lot we don't understand. You can read the Bible every year for the rest of your life, and there's still going to be some things you don't understand. But with time in this process, with some time and effort and cooperation with the Holy Spirit as we renew our minds, this can become the new default. I'm not sure what happened. I'm not sure what's going on, but there must be a perfectly good explanation. And when it comes to what God is up to, there is actually, this is actually 100% true. It's 100% true 100% of the time that even if you don't understand it, there's a perfectly good explanation. So this week, here's the default I'm going to be working on. I'm going to fill gaps in information with the most generous explanation possible because I believe that's what love looks like. Let's try this. Let's try it at home. Let's try it in the relationships that matter most to you. Try it at work tomorrow. Filling in the gap in information with the most generous explanation possible. Thank you so much for listening. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is uh, challenging. It's something that we have to come back to again and again and again because it's easy to be suspicious. It's so easy to withhold trust. Sometimes we're convinced that the wise thing to do is to withhold trust because we've been wrong before. We've been taken advantage of before. But if we're honest, we're just trying to protect ourselves. So God, help us to hope again. Help us to believe again, to trust again. God, I pray that our homes would be filled with trust. That our relationships, our friendships, our parenting, and everything, may we go back to the cross where we threw the worst that we had at you and you believed the best for us. You loved us anyway. And because of that kind of love, we have salvation in Jesus. And we're thankful for that and for the work that you're doing in our lives in Jesus' name.